Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And Brittany Rigby. Hi. And pressing the buttons is Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. And our guest is Junkies co-founder and soon-to-be editor-at-large Tim Duggan. Tim's new book, Cult Status, is out this week. But first, the week's topics. How things were even worse than we thought in Adland. Who won the first half of the TV year? A big beast returns to the media. And Australia's controversial new branding. Well, let's start then with Tim Duggan. I, uh, Tim is also joining us by video, although obviously the podcast listeners won't be able to uh, uh, enjoy that part of it. So I can I can glimpse just over Tim's shoulder a large pile of red covered books stacked in the background. Now, Viv, you are the only member of the team who's so far managed to get your hands on a copy of the book. So you had better kick this one off, I think. Yes, I, I guess I, I should. I, I did admit, Tim, just before recording that I haven't yet finished the book. I'm, I'm not <laughs> the best speed reader in the world. But but one thing that, that caught uh, my eye was towards the beginning of the book, you quote the Body Shop's founder, Anita Roddick, and uh, she says, if you think you're too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito. So I guess my first question, uh, Tim, is, did you think of yourself as a, a media mosquito when you started out? <laughs> what a great first question. Um, no, I didn't. Um, that was one of those quotes that um, it's actually been attributed to lots of people as well. As soon as you, you know those quotes that you start researching on the internet who actually said this and you go down a wormhole. Um, so Anita Roddick was one of the people that was said to have said it. Um, but the the idea behind it, um, I think looking back in retrospect on what we have been able to do at Junkie, we were a small, agile, um, quite new entrant into the market um, and we are still standing some well, Sound Alliance and Junkie Media, you know, some 15, 20 years later um, and Junkie itself some seven to eight years later when lots of people around us haven't been so lucky. Um, so, yeah, I suppose we are. We are like a mosquito in some kind of way. And Junkie is uh, a youth-focused publisher and they are charged with making a lot of noise and cutting through a lot of noise uh, on the internet. But a part of the book that I found really interesting was relating to the day of the Sydney siege, so the 15th of December 2014, where you effectively shut down the publication with only one piece of content going live called Keep Calm and Don't Speculate, How to Be Helpful on Social Media Today. You could have gone bananas with think pieces, live updates, articles about dealing with stress and trauma, the politics and policies that led to events like this. How did you know to to shut up that day? Yeah, that was a really crazy day for anyone who can remember back to 2014. Um, I think in the book I, I kind of talk about it was one of the last working weeks of Christmas. It was when things start winding down and, you, you know, there's Christmas parties. It was on December 14, I think it was. Um, and one of our philosophies at Junkie um, has been something that uh, one of our founding editors, Steph Harmon, who's now culture editor at The Guardian, a line that she came up with, which is add to the conversation, not just the noise. And being a small player, we couldn't afford to cover everything and do all the think pieces and have breaking news because we were just a couple of people when we, when we started. Um, so it was a really nice example of how we could actually live up to that, mo that motto of add to the conversation, not just the noise. Um, and we shut down all of our title. We didn't publish anything for at least a, a few days just because we wanted the news and the actual information from the police to come through. It, it, was, it was a lot of speculation at the time around were there extra detonation devices throughout the city, um, who was responsible, who wasn't responsible, and a lot of media just jumped straight to the normal 
thing of live blogs and constantly updating and here's a rumor that we heard. And we just thought it was a really good example of being able to live up to one of our model, mottos of add to the conversation, not just the noise. And Tim, I as soon as we, we talked about this, I had a flashback to reporting that day as well. And one of the things I remember was I, I knew that one story Mumbrella wrote that day, which I've managed to just pull up in front of me, was coverage of, of I, I guess, the great rival to Junkie over the years, Pedestrian, who they led their coverage with, I think it was just an unfortunate image library picture, but of a Lind bunny on top of a police barrier, which um, you, you, you can see why they chose it. And it was from an image library and it was just, it was from the Getty image library, um, just showing a bunny on a blue and white beach blanket, in fact, but it looked like a police line. How did you react to that when you, you must have seen what your rival was doing on that same day? Yeah, yeah, we, we did. And I think one of the things that successful media brands know is what they are and what they're not. And often you can define yourself as what you are by what your competitors are doing. Um, And the space that we found for Junkie from the very beginning was a space that was pretty underserviced at the time. It it was, for want of a better term, it was smart young people. Um, And that was a space that we thought was being um, neglected by some of the other publishers. No one was really talking about news at the time. No one was talking about politics. So I think when something like um, uh, the Lint siege happened and there was a couple of, you know, pedestrians being one of our great competitors over the years and we have loved sparring with them um, virtually every day since we launched. Um, and when you see your competitors doing one thing, it often inspires you to zag the other way. And when they did live blogs and constantly updating and, and you know, constant content, we decided, well, we're going to do the opposite. And Tim, in your book, Cult Status, that's out this week, you focus a lot on bullshit and and cutting out the bullshit. Why is that so important? I mean, the media could definitely be accused of of having its fair share of bullshits. So why do you think it's so important to to make an active uh, step of removing that? Yeah, and a lot has to do with the environment that we all live on, which is social media, which is influencers, which is a space that is full of a lot of bullshit. There is a lot of fakeness. There's a lot of, uh, you know, posed shots and things that are made up. And what this book really looks at is how some brands have been able to cut through all of that bullshit and stand apart from all the others. Um, and I talked to in the book people like Zoe Foster Blake, who started an amazing skincare brand called GoTo, that now has something like 40 or 50 full time staff and is stocked all throughout the world. And she's been able to translate her personal brand, if you, if, for want of a better term, which is about being honest and a bit very Australian and a bit self deprecating and very much cut out the bullshit, and how she's been able to expand that into an entire business. Um, we also look at um, two girls from Melbourne who started the Shameless podcast who used to work at Mamma Mia um, and how Shameless has been able to kind of find this space in the media market that wasn't really being serviced by lots of other media brands and a lot of that had to do with calling out the bullshit and with kind of talking about how um, the whole influencer space uh, that no one was really talking about until well, they people were talking about it, but not in the same way that until they came along. So let's talk about the actual process of writing the book itself. Uh, most journalists are pretty good when they've got a deadline that's a few hours away, but the the discipline of producing something that you haven't got a hand in for a few months' time. Um, how did you actually balance that with the day job? How did you set about writing the book? Yeah, it was it was it was a real challenge and I continued working full time the whole time through a junkie media every day. Um and I decided that I needed I, I I obviously there was a deadline. I gave myself a it was 6 months to do the original first draft and then the rest of the book took another 6 to 9 months of kind of second drafts. Um and I learned it is my first book and I learned how much of the book is actually written in the second draft and not in the first. The first is a collection of words and thoughts on a page. The second draft is a book. Um, so I am one of these 
slightly annoying people who love the mornings. I'm a morning person. Um, and so I would rise most mornings. I, I know we are on some people, I can see your faces here on video. So I'm going to watch in particular Viv's face when I say this. Um, I would arise most mornings at about 4.30 um, and, and write the book from 4.30 till 6.30 um, and then go to the gym and then come home and walk the dog and make breakfast. Um, and this was in pre-COVID days when, you know, you had to actually be in the office slightly earlier and you couldn't kind of sleep in the whole time. So most of this book was written in little bursts very early in the morning for about a year. Tim, that is a hard no from me on the 4.30 a.m. rising and the writing before the sun's up. Um, You do, however, refer to yourself in the book as the world's oldest living millennial. Now, do you mean that in terms of your actual age or in terms of your frame of mind? Look, it's probably a bit of both. Um, In terms of actual age, I was born at the end of 1980 which technically, according to a few definitions, is a millennial. But I do not have much in common with kind of a younger millennial, which would probably be about 24, 25 now. Um, However, having worked in the millennial space since before we called young people millennials, we just called them young people, um, it's also an ethos and kind of an understanding of that audience. And a lot of this book is, yes, there's some interviews with people, yes, there's some of my opinion and experience, but some of it also is based on research that we've done at Junkie Media over the past um, 10 years into about 25,000 millennials and Gen Zs. Um, so that forms the basis of some of the factual content in there. I'm glad you mentioned the research, actually, because I know when I when I talk to other media companies over the years about Junkie, one of the things I've always pointed to Junkie as being good at is that research that you've, you've just talked about. Um and so often we'll, we'll, we'll get some press releases about piece of research by company X says that company X is great. Um, or they'll do presentations saying similar. And the thing that always struck me that you were really good at junkie was your research was always, we're going to provide a service to the market, to media agencies and to marketers in which we explain what our audience is thinking about without over you know the the implication is therefore proving we know more than everyone else but it's not a chess beating exercise about the product um and it sounds so obvious when you explain that strategy yet yet nobody else does it how did you first come to owning that sort of piece of marketing position positioning that once a year we're going to be the experts yeah and and it's fascinating that you say that because in our research we hardly ask them any questions around how often do you read junkie why do you read junkie for that kind of user research you know how many cars are you intending to buy this year um that's the stuff that i feel most media companies when they talk about research it's very self-centered it's about themselves and it's very clear um grab for cash because it's you know they ask yeah how many um pairs of running shoes you plan to buy this year and they go to running shoe companies and they tell them that their audience is in, inclined to buy it. Um, so in the very early days, um, Stig Richards, um, who you know, Tim, who was our um, head of research and with us for a very long time, um, Pollinate Research, um, so Howard Parry and, and the crew there, um, and Neil and I just, we had, we had a vision of being thought leaders in the space and how were we going to differentiate ourselves um, and the the pieces every year, our research pieces, they, they're giant think pieces and they're fascinating and they're really interesting and we find them interesting. And I think like every year there's a lot of leeway that we have with it as well. Um, we go down several different um, paths to try and get there. Sometimes there's a hypothesis that we have going into it. Um but it's always fascinating. I think that's what has come across in the research whenever we present it um, at Vivid Ideas and throughout the, throughout the year. It's just really freaking interesting research about where we are in the world. And that is relevant whether you're a marketer, whether you are um, someone interested in the youth space or even not even in the youth space or a marketer, people find that interesting. And I think that's part of the reason for its success over the years. So, Tim, you've built up Junkie to be a 
somewhat of a, an innovative and, and creative uh, brand that, that had a, a cult status, if you will. Uh, and then in, in 2016, you, you sold to a company which perhaps wasn't seen as as youthful and, and culty in the sense that it was more of a traditional media player, um, an outdoor company, O-Media. How did, how did the alignment of those two quite disparate brands come together? Yeah, I still remember the Mumbrella headline when we sold, which was something along the lines of, in a surprise, in a surprising move. Yes, I've I've got it in front of me. O Media buys Junkie Media in surprise move. There you go. Yeah, I loved that headline. Um, One, because it obviously wasn't a surprise to us who'd been talking (laughs) to them for for quite a long time. Um, And two, it's one of these things that is being proven over time. And one of the things that I don't think at the time made lots of sense to externals if you kind of didn't really understand the strategy behind it. And it's one of those things that is only starting to make sense now and will continue to make more sense as the years go on. Um, and in that um, in that breath, the board and the CEO of Omedia, Brendan Cook, they were quite visionary in what they saw for their, as a need for an out-of-home company to be leaders in content. Um, we all know the concept of the digitization of the screens and that is just continuing to accelerate and accelerate. Um, the interesting thing is that, you know, now four years later, there's been a, a, a big restructure internally where my business partner, Neil, has taken on an, on an expanded role and we're really properly bringing the two companies together. And I really respect that O has had let Junkie continue to grow on its own and now that we're all really comfortable with each other and that we understand how we work we're bringing it together and I think the fruits of that are going to be shown over the next couple of years and um let's just go back to that that day or uh the 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 days you sold these things there's always a moment where it takes slightly longer than you think and it all becomes a bit stressful do you remember what you were doing and what the experience was like when you finally got the deal done I do, and and it is marked into my brain, and it will never leave. And I actually talk about it in the book. Um, and in an original early draft of the book, that was the start of the book, um, and it kind of now is somewhere um, in the middle of it. Um, it was freaking difficult from both sides. And when it happened, I got to the end, and I think I turned to someone and I said, "I don't understand how any company is ever bought or, or sold." Because so many things need to line up. Into the company being bought needs to line up and all the shareholders and the timing of that. The company buying it needs to line up all their board. And then the external market also needs to be at the right place you know, to, for funding and things like that. So we were over in Cannes, Neil and I, um, at the um, Cannes Awards, the advertising festival. And the worst timing in the world being kind of both of us being out of the office at the same time. Um, and I remember the flight on the way over there. I just thought every minute leading up to it, that the whole thing was going to fall over. And I think that's, that's a common thing. I actually just listened belatedly to the startup um, episodes of them selling Gimlet to Spotify. Um, very similar feelings of the whole thing just being able to can fall over. And so I remember getting on a plane to Europe and I checked my emails just before I got into the plane and there was, there was about a thousand small things that had to happen and lawyers arguing over bullet points. And I got off in Singapore and then I, expect, I spent the entire plane ride feeling sick. I was, for want of a, uh, I, I go into it a bit in the book, but it was coming out of both ends. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, and got off the plane and um, read all of the, small things and we tried to whack-a-mole some of the issues then got back on a plane again and then got to France and I remember arriving in France and Neil and his wife Vanessa had been there a couple of days earlier and so they were kind of in the mode and um, Neil's a bit more experienced at these things than me so they were welcoming me to this you know let's go for dinner at this beautiful um, place and I turned up there and I hadn't slept in like in the entire flight. I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't hold food down. Um, it was not one of those great experiences that you, you know, think selling your company is going to be an amazing experience. It was actually quite terrible that lead up to it. 
And I must admit, um, shortly before we sold Mumbrella, um, I was at the open air cinema and Neil, Neil Ackland and his wife, Vanessa, who also did the, did, did the current Mumbrella design as well. So we do have some shared DNA. I was going through maybe not quite that level of stress, but very similar. And I know Neil well enough that I was telling him a little bit of what, uh, what we'd been going through. And he was, yeah, he was definitely the calm one. He's like, it's going to be okay. It'll be all right. <laughs> I think Neil says it's one of the only times he's seen me stressed, like properly stressed in the, in the entire period, which I'll take as a badge of honor, because if there's things to get stressed over, it's, it's a deal like that falling over. And Tim, you're about to take a, a step back from junkie in terms of the, the day to day and, and you're moving into a, a new role that's a bit more detached what's brought that about yeah a lot of thought a lot of discussion something that neil and i have spoken about for years um on when is the right time to leave something that you have, have built and that i adore so much um and it just it just felt right um i i i like the the idea of leaving on a high and i feel like Junkie at the moment is doing really amazing things. We've secured Netflix as a client in our agency side of the business. We're doing really great work with some of those other clients. Um, we're starting, you know, obviously COVID's had a massive effect on all media companies, but we have been holding everyone together through this period and we're starting to see some green shoots of optimism um, around that. Um, and we've got a really great team in place, which is really important for me. So Rob Stott, who's a managing editor, is getting promoted into a new role and we're rehiring in his position. So it just, it just felt I have a lot of other things I'd like to explore um, and I don't think there's ever a good time to leave something that you love. Um, but it just felt after 14 and a half years, um, it's, it's in a good place. Um, Neil is staying on. Um, and O is an amazing home for Junkie, um, and it just it just felt right. That's that's my only explanation of, as of the timing. Well, Tim is staying with us for the rest of the Mumbrella Cast. Next, we find out just how bad the ad market really got in May. So there was more bad news for Adlan this week with an update from Standard Media Index. Ad revenues were down by 40.4% in May. Britt, you wrote this one. That sounds bad. It does sound bad, probably because it is bad, Tim. It didn't feel like there was much good news in the latest Standard Media Index figures. So Every major media format was down. The usual kind of predictable suspects like cinema and outdoor were down by more than 70%. Cinema was down almost 80%. But TV was down, newspapers were down, magazines were down, and all significantly. It wasn't, you know, a couple of percentage points slide, which we sometimes see. So it's been worse than I think SMI predicted. I mean, Managing Director Jane Ratcliffe said that it's far worse than anything ever experienced. And in the release, SMI also included a chart that compared GFC spend and how the market reacted post-GFC to how the market's reacting kind of through and post-COVID. And we're doing much worse than we were during the GFC. So yeah, not a good month. Now, Tim, in your book, you reference my favourite headline error of all time, the Australian Financial Review's Monday the 24th of April 2017 cover with the line, world is fucked. Is at this moment when Brittany's talking about figures like that, is the world of media fucked, spelt F-U-K-T? It's amazing how much that headline uh, can stand for so many different things. In, in, when I was talking about the book, I wasn't talking about May's SMI data. <laughs> However, um, you could apply it. Uh, things are pretty fucked. Um, it's pretty bleak out there at the moment and there's no way of sugarcoating that. Um, it does feel like this data obviously was from May, which was probably peak COVID lockdown um, no one really had any idea of what the path out of it looked like at the time. 
So you'd like to think that this might be, hopefully, the bottom um, of of the market. Um, the interesting thing, I think, is that everyone can see that Q2 is a bit of a write-off. And the question is, what does Q3 and particularly Q4 look like in this market? Um, it's interesting. And then even looking ahead as what does 2021 look like in this market? Um, for guidance on that, I think it's interesting to look at companies like Qantas um, who've kind of announced that they're going to be rebuilding their company at about 20% smaller than it was going into the beginning of the year. And I think that's a kind of a fair indication of what 2021 and onwards is going to look like. And Hannah, I might bring you in as well. Um, and I I winced slightly when uh, Tim said the words about, I think we might have hit the bottom this month, mainly because I had a flashback to writing Best of the Week uh, last month and pretty much, I think, writing about the SMI data and calling the bottom of the, the, bar, the market a month ago, only to be proved completely wrong, which is kind of awkward because I'll be writing Best of the Week for this weekend as well. So I'm, I'm stuck with what to do with the uh, uh, how to treat this data. So, uh, so Hannah, I'm hoping you can tell me the answer um i think maybe just started off with best of the week hey guys sorry i was wrong and i'm not going to guess anymore um yeah i think it's i think a lot of people have been saying may was going to be the worst um and i think obviously those figures are you know perhaps worse than we even expected um but a lot of the reporting we're hearing out of media companies and this could all be bravado or it could be you know wishful thinking is that things were starting to improve for the june bookings and for the july bookings so one would hope that that means then those numbers aren't are going to be better i think <laughs> i'm going to put myself on record saying it's unlikely they can be worse but you know let's let's all hope and pray that I don't also have to issue a different statement next umbrella cast. I would say Tim as well that I don't think you're the only one calling things and then being proven wrong because I mean we saw it last year too we've had I I've lost count at this point it would be over 20 months consecutively of decline in ad spend but SMI was kind of saying last year at this point it'll improve at this point it'll improve and kept having to push out those predictions then COVID hit. When it released April's figures, it said that June looked more promising. But then when it released the figures this week for May, it said that July and August is now the period to look at. And I don't know. I just sense that, again, that's just going to be pushed out inch by inch. Maybe they'll be better than, you know, 40% decline, but I don't know how much better. Next, a lot of fuss about a logo. So let's hope that the people behind Australia's new national brand identity are better at marketing than they are at public relations, because the launch of the logo didn't really go that well, did it, Viv? Look, there's been a lot of confusion around this brand and what it stands for and why it exists. So there has been a huge communication issue in the defence of the people who put it together, which is Clemenger BBGO Sydney, along with the nation brand advisory council australia is such a self-conscious nation in terms of its identity that there was literally nothing that they could have put together where we would have said fucking good job guys well done it was just a task i do not envy at all this was compounded by the fact though that they're trying to capitalize on what australia is great at and what we're perceived as internationally but make us seem a bit more sophisticated uh, as a business and investment destination. So they've tried to steer away from, you know, the kangaroos and the cutesy laid back side of Australia and instead position us as a, a business destination. In doing so, they've done quite an abstract wattle flower, which unfortunately, I'm sure this logo would have been developed pre COVID. It's been pointed out does look quite a lot like the COVID-19 virus. So it's terrible timing for them. It's our unfortunate self-consciousness in our own brand and the fact that we, you know, we're going through a tough time as a country and it's not a great time to be rebranding, I don't think. And why is it that um, 
logos are always so controversial. Viv, whenever we write about a logo, we always get loads of comments. We do. And I think it's because you're trying to distill so much into an image. And and even though we say an image paints a thousand words, part of the problem is that logos such as this one for the nation brand of Australia have to be so over-explained. That's what a lot of the criticism has been with this brand, that it's meant to sell the country and it should be easily identifiable as, oh, yes, that's Australia. I'd like to purchase this product or I'd like to have this experience or I'd like to invest this money. The Nation Brand Project had to so over-explain what this was, why this meant that, why this represented this, that I think people just feel if you've got to over-explain it and if you've put that much thought into it and it's that disconnected from the reality and what consumers think, then people just sort of write it off as a bit of a wank. I, I think in this case also, just like anything that Tourism Australia do, you've got 25 million clients who all hate it before they've even seen what it is. Um, and I think on paper, it actually sounds okay. So it doesn't like, you, let's use Australia's national flower as a basis. Let's bring in some Indigenous motifs into it. It's when you start actually seeing it in real life. And the interesting thing about this one was the first time I saw it, there was the gold in there. And for some reason, I just started thinking of mining. It just, it just mining came to mind. And then I did a bit of research into who is on Australia's Nation Brand Advisory Council. And the chairman of it is Andrew Forrest. So whether it was subconsciously, you know, trying to have a subtle inclination to remind us of mining and how wonderful it is for the country. I don't know whether that was the intent, but I just, I found that advisory committee has some other amazing names on it. It's got Edwina McCann on it. Um, it's got uh, Michael O'Keefe, the CEO of ASOP. So people who really know design. And I just think that obviously it was done pre-COVID and I think they were kind of too close to it to kind of stand back and see and probably too in love with the idea on paper. And when you go on that, I've been, we've all been there when you've been in the room and the designer talks to you about something and you go on that journey and you hear everything about it and then you see something and it means something to you and then someone else sees it for the first time and goes, ah, it's coronavirus. It always makes me think of when we talk about logos changing, it makes me think of in 2015 when Spotify changed the colour of their logo and the internet had a complete meltdown. I've just looked up a story about it now and there are tweets here, I'm considering deleting the Spotify app because the new shade of green makes me feel uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, Spotify has come out with a new shade of green. It's giving me anxiety. <laughs> I think my phone's broken. Oh no, it's just the new Spotify app. Guess I'm going to have to delete it. So that was literally a slight change of color. I think the reactions to logos never really make sense, but I don't totally agree with Tim that I can see how on paper this one everyone was like, "Oh my god, fantastic idea. Go with it." And then they roll it out to an audience and the audience is like, "Why?" And they're like, "Oh shit, but it's too late now." Next, Mike Conahan returns. Did you miss the first Mumbrella Awards entry deadline? Don't worry, you still have plenty of time to polish off and submit your last-minute entries with the final entry deadline closing midnight on Tuesday. Offering up 30 categories spanning media, marketing, advertising, PR and production, make sure you check to see which categories apply to you and your team and start your entries very soon. Again, final entries close midnight on Tuesday the 7th of July, so make the most of this weekend to throw your hat in the ring. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash awards to get started straight away. Until he left WPP in 2018, Mike Conahan was one of the best-known executives in the advertising world, and now he's back, this time media side at News Corp. Viv, what is the gig? Look, Mike Conahan's one of those people who we've been waiting to report on his next gig, and I remember some feedback you gave me a while ago, Tim, was any time a bigwig got a job, we would say that they had resurfaced and you would say, you can't just say that everybody's resurfaced. They never went below the surface. 
But I think with Mike Conahan, it truly is a resurfacing because he's been gone for a while. He left WPP in October 2018, uh, and now he's going to be heading up commercial content for News Corp. So that includes its content marketing agency, suddenly uh, its investment in medium rare, as well as sort of exploiting uh, audio and, and written commercial partnerships and content opportunities. So here is a question that occurred to me, and I I, I had a, um, a little road trip this week, so this was a story I got to read about when I came back. And my first thought was this, well, two-part thought. Firstly, this doesn't sound like a big enough job for Mike Conahan, you know, effectively running news course content marketing stuff. And the second thought being, and I bet it's not, the whole story. What do you think the other part of the story is, Viv? Are you the anonymous commenter on the 1st of July who says there is no way Conahan is going to news to run some small content studio? Is that you, Tim, on your you road know, trip? <laughs> I, I was in such a remote wilderness spot that I didn't even have 3G, let alone enough 4G to actually write a comment on Mumbrella. But it's good to see that uh, I, I'm not the only one thinking like that. Yeah. So he, Mike Conahan, would be on big money. You know, he ran Australia's largest advertising and media agency holding group. He oversaw various mergers, countless staff, lots of agencies, huge ad campaigns, billions of dollars of media bookings. Uh, and now apparently he's doing a, a content marketing role at News Corp. But this so often uh, happens with big roles like this. You you parachute somebody in, get them started, and then there's often a, a bigger project in the works. And I'm sure that once uh, Mike proves his his worth at News Corp on the content marketing side and building those relationships when when the publisher is under quite a lot of pressure, perhaps the bigger picture will emerge. But as for what that bigger picture is, truly, truly, I don't know. But News Corp has done so many restructures. Honestly, it could be anything. Well, I suppose it's also interesting, isn't it? I know I've seen a bit of speculation in recent weeks on um, if and when Michael Miller moves on, who might replace him and Damien Eels has been talked about. Um, there was also the possibilities of, you know, somebody sort of moving back from the Foxtel side of it, the possibility of Campbell Reed, um, sort of long, long serving editorial, um, director. And all of a sudden there must be a delicious piece of speculation that maybe it might be an outsider. Yes, and then by the time that rolls around, I guess uh, Mike Conahan won't be an outsider because he would have sort of built up rapport with the various executive leaders and and gotten the commercial content strategy uh, under under his belt. So I definitely thought that as well. I did think, whoa, that is a that's a big name to be working alongside already other really big names at News Corp, including Damian Eels and Lou Barrett and Michael Miller. Uh, a lot of people have pointed out, of course, the unfortunate uh, prospect that Mike Conahan would be on a lot of money when News Corp has just, you know, been closing print centres, let a lot of journalists go, shut down a lot of publications. So he's really going to have to inject a lot of uh, revenue and, and new revenue streams and exploit whatever money is available to News Corp to to justify his being there at a time when the company is really shrinking. Next, who won the first half? of the TV year. Well, we made it out of June. We are now officially halfway done with 2020. Now, normally the halfway point does mean a lot in television. Maybe not quite as normal this year, Hannah, but we are halfway through on that ratings battle. So who do we reckon has got the upper hand at this point? Yeah, it's wild to believe that we're only halfway through this year. It feels like a lifetime. But yeah, so halfway through the year and f across any way you want to slice it, nine's winning the year at the moment. Um, in total, people as a network, they've got a 38% share that's above seven's 36 and 10. And that's just 25. the commercial share, ex excluding the non-commercial players. Yeah, that is just commercial share. Um, they were also winning as a channel. They're also winning across the key um, advertising demographics as well. I think what's really interesting out of this, though, is because obviously we saw a lot of complicated things happen at the beginning of this year, 
both nine and seven were hit really hard with a lack of sport. Um, everybody had to kind of delay a bunch of programming as well. So definitely wasn't a traditional first half of the year and I think even though nine is the one winning at the moment the person or the network that's benefited the most from this has been 10. 10 have had their biggest first half commercial share growth since 2011 and they had by far the biggest first half growth out of the three commercial networks obviously that's coming from what was a fairly low base last year but it really does show that they were, you know, they kind of filled in, well, without live sport, they didn't have to fill in the gaps. They shuffled some things around and got pretty, pretty lucky with some of their programming. Now, Tim, what are your TV habits? Presumably because your audience are mostly into streaming, I'm guessing. You may not feel duty banned to watch much free-to-air television. I personally watch very little free-to-air television. Um, I've have every one of the streaming platforms. Um, sometimes I find there's still not nothing I really want to watch, depending on how I'm feeling. Um, but I, I think the first six months, it's it's interesting to see the um, those percentages changing because it was a pretty tumultuous six months, and I don't know if that's going to change much in the back half. So the most interesting thing is that tv like most other medias at the moment have increased audience and decreased revenue um and i think the question then is in the past it was well can they convert the money that's out there and will they that extra viewers in there translate into extra dollars i think the question now is uh what dollars will be there to convert in the next uh, half of the year and Tim, one of Junkie's publications is Punky, which is perhaps even younger skewing than Junkie. And a lot of its audience uh, was built on video recaps of The Bachelor and the various shows within that franchise. How is uh, Punky and its audience coping with all of those shows being delayed this year due to COVID? We haven't had any iterations of that format yet. Yeah, it's a really good question. It has had an effect on on traffic, to be honest, for Punky. Um, not many shows have the same amount of cult status, and I use that term only because Osha um, kindly gave lovely quotes for the book, um, but not many of them have the same amount of cult status as things like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Um, and the networks try every year for things to have that same amount of impact. And there's few things that have that amount of talkability in the, particularly in the younger market. Um, Big Brother has semi talkability at the moment, um, and MasterChef as well, but nothing like The Bachelor and Bachelorette. So we are very excited that Bachelor in Paradise comes back in the middle of this month. Um, and then the whole franchise kicks off from there. So it's nice to know that COVID has killed a lot of things off, but hopefully not the rose ceremony. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you referenced talkability in there because if I know 10, that's one of their favourite uh, points to um, single out across their ratings is the talkability of their shows or the water cooler talkability of their shows. Um, I think also just going back to your point, Tim, about how the numbers will actually shake down. If we remember last year, there was a lot of back and forth between nine and seven, even though nine did so well last year, it was still seven who, if I remember correctly, came out on top in terms of revenue. And I think James Warburton, CEO of seven, gave a quote, you know, people underestimate how good Kurt Burnett and his sales team are. And on the flip side of that, nine CEO Hugh Marks came out and said that his sales team had kind of let the let the side down and we're going to have to do a lot better this year. I think in reflection of what's actually happened this year, it'll be really interesting, especially with nine winning so far to see if nine were able to turn that around by the end of the year, um, considering they had some pretty, pretty big walls to climb. And Hannah, I think that's a really good point because of course they've all got far less in the locker because production has, has has been halted you know i was i was looking at you know you you wrote the ratings um story for this week you know that the fact that we're seeing you know reruns of america's got talent um we're dusting off what i assume are old episodes of bondi rescue uh, even kath and kim has been given another outing um is there actually much in the locker because presumably we can't get you know 13 weeks of content out of holy moly <laughs> if they ever get that to air 
We certainly can't, especially when it's only going to be an eight-episode run. Um, in terms of what's in the locker, I think for 10, they're doing okay. As Tim mentioned, they've got the entire Batchy franchise still to come. They've got The Masked Singer, which I spoke to um, Bev McGarvey from 10 just a couple of days ago, and she said they've just locked in casting on that. Um, and they've also got Junior MasterChef coming. So the only thing that there is a little bit of a question on them about is uh, Australian Survivor, which obviously can't film because it's in Fiji. And The Amazing Race, which they have already moved to a domestic version, but it didn't seem to appear in the slate anywhere that I looked. I have asked the question, haven't got a response yet. I think Nine are doing okay. They've still got Ninja to come and The Block, but the one who may really struggle there is Seven because they weren't able to get as much of their filming done in advance. Um, They've got Farmer Wants a Wife, which is still to air. They're only halfway through Plate of Origin, haven't finished filming that yet. Holy Moly films in the US, so that's a bit of a struggle. And SAS Who Dares Wins films in New Zealand, so another struggle there. So, yeah, I think Seven are probably grasping at straws at this point. Next, an expensive week for the Daily Telegraph. So Thursday of this week saw News Corp receive confirmation that it owes Jeffrey Rush $2.9 million after defaming him in articles published in 2017. Britt, how did we get to this point? God, it's a big question, Tim. Um, so, yeah, the articles were in 2017 and related to allegations from the 2015 and 16 production of King Lear at the Sydney Theatre Company. And the Telegraph ran this story that, you know, there was an actor that had made complaints. The The author, Jonathan Moran, didn't name Erin Jean Norville, who we now know was that complainant. And she didn't provide comment for those articles, but her identity was revealed through the process and she ended up giving evidence in the case. Justice Michael Wigney decided last year that Jeffrey Rush had won his defamation case and News Corp, Nationwide News, the publisher of the Daily Telegraph, then commenced its appeal. So that whole process finally wrapped up this morning, the day we're recording this, so Thursday. And, I mean, News Corp were appealing on a bunch of grounds. There were a lot of different things that they were appealing. But interestingly, the appeal court struck out every single one of those appeal grounds. So that included a bid to try and get it retrialed, which would be enormously expensive, um, and also an effort to reduce the amount of damages that they'd have to pay, which is understandable given that $2.87 million figure and the fact that Bauer successfully argued down the defamation damages payout that they had to pay Rebel Wilson. But, yeah, Jeffrey Rush now becomes the recipient of the single largest defamation payout in the country's history, which is pretty crazy. Well, Tim, one of the points that News Corp has made without re-arguing the case itself is that um, the Australian defamation system is a pretty tough one for publishers. Um, I'm sure over the last few years, you must have had a few sticky situations for Junkie. Um, Which, you might not be able to talk about who it was from, but which legal letter has created the most stress for you? (laughs) Nice try, Tim. (laughs) Um, I obviously can't talk about any particular cases, but every publisher has had to deal with the intricacies of defamation law, and it's really tricky. Uh, Our defamation laws, trying to navigate them from both sides, from the the media's side um, in what we want to say, and sometimes when someone has something truthful that they want to say and they want to get it out there, it can be quite technical. Um, I think the main thing is that if you're a media and you are going to publish something that is going to have an effect on someone's reputation with pretty serious allegations like in the Daily Telegraph story, you really have to make sure that everything is 100% watertight. Um, And the courts have have said that the telly and Jonathan Moran didn't in this case. And I think when we talk of defamation, often it is about the actual story. And so the lawyers might look at the story itself and go over it and every word gets crafted sometimes. But it's often the things around the story that get publishers in trouble. 
um, in this case, the headline. Um, so someone wrote what they thought was a clever headline in King Lear. Um, and I even remember the, the Joe Hockey Fairfax case where it had to do with tweets uh, and with the street screamers um, in, you know, that that got um, Fairfax into trouble. And it feels like those things often get forgotten about um, by the time it makes it down to someone writing a headline or someone putting out a tweet. They're not as close to the defamation. The- potential defamatory implications of the content. I'd also point out in terms of, you know, you said, Tim, just how hard it is to meet a threshold where you feel comfortable enough to press publish. I mean, very recently we had the Sydney Morning Herald break those allegations and findings against Dyson Hayden, who was a former High Court Justice, and Kate McClymont and Jacqueline Malley, who wrote that story, were on that story for years. Like his name first came out when they were hearing stories about Don Burke and, you know, Craig McLaughlin. And then you you have allegations that you've backed up, you have multiple people on the record, and still it's against this backdrop where you've got people like Craig McLaughlin and Jeffrey Rush pursuing newspapers through the courts and for the most part doing quite well out of that process. And I was listening to a podcast that the SMH put out the other day about, you know, what that story was like behind the scenes. And it was really only the fact that the High Court did an inquiry itself and released the findings of that inquiry that they were able to hinge it on that rather than hinge it on the stories of, you know, the accusers themselves. So, yeah, I mean, I I suppose I'd go back to how this segment was opened, which is that it's an expensive day for the telly. I mean, Jeffrey Rush's barrister said in court that he originally offered to settle for $50,000. They're now paying $2.87 million on top of legal costs. There's submissions that have to be put in as to, you know, which parties pay legal costs for the other side. And it also then has this court of appeal precedent that you can't run this stuff and it'd be okay. So I think not just an expensive day for the telly, but also one for the wider industry in terms of what it means to be able to run these sorts of stories. Well, that is it for this week. But before we go, don't forget that we've just launched this year's call for entries for Mumbrella's Publish Awards. If you work online, in magazines or in print, these are the awards that recognise what you do. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards to find out more. That is it for this week, though. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Toodle pip. 